to Peace Lab. We're good to have you all with us this week. I'm Melissa Flor Bixler from Raleigh Mennonite Church, and I'm here with my co-host, Jason Boone. Also of Raleigh Mennonite Church, I'll, I'll just put that in there. Some people did ask me uh, last week after they heard or when it became known you were co-host, they said, isn't it, isn't, but don't, I said, yeah, she's the pastor there at Raleigh Mennonite, and you can, you can be friends with your pastor. I think that's <laughs> Yeah, this is the revolutionary <laughs> happening here on Peace Lab. Friend, friendship and work, uh, all, all combined in one. We're grateful to have with us today Joanna Schenk, who is the Associate Pastor of First Mennonite Church of San Francisco, and in her spare time is the co-producer of the Iconoclast podcast. She's a writer, networker, activist, and educator. Um, she's written before the book Widening the Circle, Experiments in Christian Discipleship, but we are actually here to talk to her today about a book that was recently published, second publication for Joanna, The Movement Makes Us Human, an interview with Dr. Vincent Harding on Mennonites, Vietnam, and MLK. Great to have you with us, Joanna. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for the opportunity to share about the book and honor the legacy of Dr. Harding, and especially as we're right around the 50-year anniversary of the assassination of King and the 51st anniversary of the uh, Beyond Vietnam speech that Dr. Harding originally penned, but then Dr. King spoke at Riverside Church. So yeah, it feels like a really special time to be thinking about this stuff together. You start off the book, you tell us a little bit about some of that history, this really incredible history, the connections between Harding and uh, MLK, Beach, the Beyond the Famous Prophetic Beyond Vietnam speech. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, Dr. Vincent Harding? Yeah, I would love to. So I got to know him in 2010 to 2011 when I was on staff with Mennonite Church USA. And we were wanting to do an oral history project on Mennonites who had significant ecumenical or inter-church stories or uh, had done significant work in that way. And everybody was like, Vincent Harding, you need to talk to Vincent Harding. And I didn't know who he was initially, but soon I learned. And when I got in touch with him to say it was originally if he would be interested in being a part of my Widening the Circle book project, he said, could you come to Denver and do an extended interview with me for like a couple of days? Because I'd really like to think about my formation within the Mennonite church, within the Anabaptist tradition um, in the 50s and 60s. And I was like, yes. <laughs> I mean, and felt like both really honored and really daunted at the same time. And then as I got to know more of his story, I realized not only was he one of the first black Mennonite pastors and a friend of Dr. King and a part of the civil rights movement, which he never liked calling it the civil rights movement. He said that was the product of lazy journalism or lazy journalists calling it the civil rights movement. But what it actually was was the Black-led movement for the deepening and broadening of democracy in this country. So I learned about parts of all of that, and then also that he was right at the center of creating the field of Black studies. Um, and this was through his founding the Institute of the Black World, which was an institute based in Atlanta that brought together Black scholars and artists and activists and intellectuals and writers with the goal of like defining what it meant to be black within American history. Um, and I think now, like I'm in my thirties and I just kind of take for granted that most universities have black studies departments. 
you know, that wasn't the case in the 60s. So he was both creating the Institute of the Black World at the same time that he was the first director of what was then the King Memorial Center in Atlanta. As I was getting to know him, like, how does not everyone know about you? Like, there's really significant stuff that he contributed then and continued to contribute to movements. It was an honor to get to to be mentored by him in the last uh, years of his life. He passed away unexpectedly in the middle of uh, heart surgery in 2014. Although he was in his early 80s, no one expected that he would pass at that time. Like he was planning to write his memoir, had a bunch of travel lined up, like he was traveling, speaking, really active. So I felt like having done this extended interview, I really wanted his voice to be um, as present as possible in our context today, especially with what we're facing in this country and in the world. Um, So it, it was a real honor to get to put together this book and now have it available. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about in the foreword, reading about more about his life and also the, how he passed away unexpectedly before he got to, to write a lot about himself. So just what a, a gift it is that this oral history was able to be preserved and, and what a gift it will be to, for all of us that you were um, able to, to be a part of his life in that way. So yeah, so I'm grateful that we all get to have access to that now. What he was hoping to write his memoir focused around, or the title that he had chosen, was Loved Into Life, which for him was a way of reflecting on all of the different communities that loved him into life. And I found that in conversation with him, in the extended interview and in conversations we had after that, that that really was so much at the core of his being, that he had been a part of so many different kinds of communities, both spiritual communities, intellectual communities, activist communities. And he didn't have to like cut himself off from the previous communities in order to grow into new communities. And I just thought like, what a beautiful example of a life well lived of someone who started in a particular place. I mean, we all start in a particular place, (laughs) but then was able to keep deepening and expanding and growing and maintain connection and relationship in all of these different types of communities. I think that in and of itself is a really beautiful challenge and invitation to all of us to think about who are the communities that have shaped us um, and how do we honor them, even if in some ways we've moved beyond them or we're asking questions or we're wrestling with things that maybe aren't at the center of those communities. Like how do we still honor those formative spaces and those relationships. It seems like so many of us are looking for just some wisdom, like some guidance. We, we just want to know which way to go in this current time we're in as a country and as a world. And I know you, you've got some, maybe some thoughts on some lessons that we can learn as a church from Dr. Harding. Maybe before we get there, just uh, tell our listeners here. So you talked a little bit about Dr. Harding's history and the experience in widening the circle. So the current book and the one that you just, I, I don't know how many years you worked on. I know these things take a lot of time, but the movement makes us human. What's the focus of that? And what can our listeners expect when they pick up a copy? The first half of the book, content-wise, is looking at his formation among Mennonites and within the Anabaptist tradition in the 50s and 60s. So he had grown up in a Seventh-day church in Harlem and then moved to Chicago to do a master's and then a PhD program in history at the University of Chicago. And it was there that he started reading Christian history and came across the Anabaptists and were like, wow, this is 
really an interesting group of people and I feel some affinity to them. And then was like, oh, they're still around, kind of. And then he met a Mennonite, I think Elmer Neufeld, who was on the pastoral staff of Woodlawn Mennonite Church that no longer exists, but was a Mennonite church in Chicago. And they were a biracial church of white and black people. And at that time had been connected to the Mennonite seminary that was in Chicago, but then moved to to Goshen Elkhart right at the time that he was getting connected to them in the the mid fifties. And so there was a lot of conversation about what does it mean to be an interracial church? And so they invited him to be a co-pastor along with another uh, white man. And that he said for him was when he started to connect kind of like social justice or like ethics with theology. Um, And it was really with Mennonites that he started to see the importance of, you know, how we're living in the world is directly related to how we're following Jesus or how we understand what it means to follow Jesus. So that was a really formative experience for him. And then things that we talk about in the first or second chapter of the book is this car trip that he and four other men from that congregation took to the South. And none of them had been there before. Two of them were black, three were white. And on that trip, they visited Dr. King in his home, which is a great story. That's the first time that they met King. And Vincent Harding said at the end of that visit, King looked at him and the other African-American man, Ed Riddick, and said, you are Mennonites, you know about nonviolence, you need to come down here and join the movement. Um, And that was, was a significant call to Vincent Harding, even though he didn't immediately start making moves towards going south. But that really stuck with him and stuck with like, what is it that Mennonites have to offer this movement for justice and for freedom? So the first couple of chapters look at those years, the era of the Southern Freedom Movement, his formation among Mennonites, and then his journey in a way that kind of deepened beyond Mennonites, where he was thinking about his identity as a Black man and really connecting with the Black community in different ways, different types of Black communities. And that's when the Institute of the Black World was taking shape. And for some Mennonites, it was confusing because it's like, wait, now your Black identity is more important than your Mennonite identity. And there wasn't this recognition that Mennonite identity is so steeped in Eurocentric norms and in whiteness, you know, and that's something that we're still wrestling with. So that was a part of his, like, I'm not saying I'm not Mennonite. I'm just saying this is another really important part of me that, you know, I feel like I need to explore and be present to. So that's the first three chapters. And then the last three chapters, we look at questions around nonviolence and social change, look at creating diverse communities, look at realities of white supremacy, and also what is it that the church has to offer today, both the Mennonite church, but also more broadly, like the American Christian church. So there's history, but there's also wrestling with, okay, what does it mean now? How do we continue to follow Jesus in our lives? (laughs) I know that you went into pastoral ministry, probably right around the same time or shortly after you were working on this book. And I'm curious to know how Vincent Harding's life and his work has impacted your own ministry and formed you as a pastor. So I had done the interview a few years before, but yeah, it was, I started working on the the transcript and really putting it together right after the election of Donald Trump, because I felt like, you know, we need his wisdom now more than ever. This is, yeah, it's just a different reality than I think a lot of people were expecting would happen. And so it was January of 
2017 that I started working on the book in earnest. And at that time, yeah, I was also a pastor at First Mennonite. And we had, in the years prior, in 2015 especially, had done a focus as a congregation on recognizing structural sin, um, structural oppression, and what collective liberation then means. Liberation, salvation, I think, are very much related to each other. And then later in the year, we looked at how do we reimagine? How do we rebuild? What, do, what is restitution? And so that set a framework for us in the congregation, I think, that allowed us then as things were shifting in this country and new, new realities were coming to the fore that were really kind of sobering, especially related to white supremacy. It's like, okay, we have a foundation for how we can make sense of what's going on and what our response is. And I think that my um, relationship with Vincent Harding, some of the things that he taught me that were really significant was first to know where I've come from, to know what communities have shaped me, kind of like I was saying earlier. But for those who um, met Vincent Harding or were in a space where he was facilitating, he would almost always ask people to introduce themselves in this one particular way, which is to say, your full name and where you spent your childhood and your mama's mama's full name and where she spent her childhood as a way of kind of connecting both with the matriarchal lineage, you know, that often can get left out in patriarchal realities. But I think also to recognize the geographical movement within families or recognizing some of us grew up really close to, you know, our, our grandparents and other people didn't for reasons that were chosen or reasons that, you know, were forced upon them. But I think for him, it was really important that people knew who they were and what their stories were. And we could talk a lot at length around like the upsurge of white supremacy and how in a way it's people not knowing who they are, not knowing where they've come from, you know, not being connected with any history of struggle, you know, within their family or their community or their tradition. And so I think this question of, who are you? Where are you from? Where are your people from? It's, it's really important. So that's one thing. And then another thing is experience that I had with him when we were in Northern Indiana, when I was still living in Northern Indiana, and I was facilitating a week-long trip around Martin Luther King Day, where he was speaking at Goshen College, at um, Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary, at Notre Dame, um, and also at a community center in Elkhart, where some of my friends were involved. And I remember uh, he was staying in Goshen with some friends, I had picked him up, and we were driving to Elkhart to AMBS for uh, his speaking there. And I was driving, and he was in the passenger seat, and he said, so what would you be interested you know, in me talking about today, or what, what do you think would be helpful for your community to hear, the seminary community? And, and I said, well, you know, we're just so honored to have you here. Really, we're open to whatever it is that you're feeling that you want to share or, um, you know, anything that's like coming up for you. And he paused for a minute. And folks who know him know that he was he didn't speak quickly, like was very contemplative in his presence and, and in his cadence. And so he like paused. And then he just said very emphatically, he's like, Joanna, this is your community. You know what your community needs. I don't. So I need you to tell me what would be good for me to talk about today. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, did, I don't think I said that, but that's how I felt inside. So I like took a deep breath. And then I did have something to say. 
And I think that was another really important point is like, he believed that everyone was empowered to speak to the needs of their community and that everyone had the capacity to know what their community needed and to really take ownership and responsibility for creating that change. And so I often say that like a week spent with Vincent Harding is like equivalent to like a semester's leadership program or something. Because <laughs> he was both like so loving, but also so clear and even fierce at times in like the challenges that he would offer to people. So yeah, I think those two things, knowing that have been really formative for me, knowing my family story, knowing where I've come from, how I've been shaped, and then also being clear on what does my community need? You know, how are we working together for justice and for wholeness in the world? You know, one of the so, uh, sort of reoccurring conversations that we have on Peace Lab is, so what does a peace church look like in the 21st century? So I'm curious now, just uh, from your perspective, for your community in terms of Mennonite Church USA or Mennonites and however you want to put that, what message do we need to hear and what do we need to be doing uh, to be a real, relevant, viable peace church in these times that we find ourselves in? I think three things that that I could speak to briefly that I've been reflecting about related to, to Vincent Harding, but I think specifically do speak to that question of what our calling is as peace churches. Um, and I think one of them is recognizing root causes. And maybe I'll just say the three of them. We'll see how far we get into each of them. But but I think recognizing root causes of, of oppression, which we can also call sin. So looking at what's going on that has created so much division, that, has, that creates so much violence in our world and an inability to be in right relationship with each other, with the environment. So that's one thing. Another thing I think as peace churches is having the capacity to work across lines of difference. Uh, because as we know within the Mennonite tradition, we at times can be so concerned about our type of like purity, you know, that we can't possibly relate to those other impure people. And we don't, we haven't had the capacity to work across lines of difference. So what does it mean to be able to do that? Which could be like for people committed to nonviolence and nonviolent direct action saying we're going to be in relationship with folks or at least understand more why folks choose Antifa tactics. Because in reality, we're all anti-fascist, right? (laughs) Like none of us think fascism is a good idea, but why is it so hard sometimes to connect with folks who are choosing to confront violence in ways that we don't agree with? So I think that's another one, working across lines of difference. And then the third is liberation from white supremacy. Like, how do we continue to do this work within our congregations, whether it's congregations that are primarily made up of white people or multiracial congregations or congregations that are primarily people of color? We've all been affected by white supremacy. Um, And I think the onus is especially on people who are white to think about what that means within their context and what it means to follow Jesus in a way that is undoing that. Because as we know, Jesus was a Palestinian Jew who was poor, he was not. Um, so, so like, if we say we're following Jesus, let's get clear on who he was, the kind of movement he was leading, and then think about, are we actually aligned with that movement, or are we just kind of doing something totally different? And I think that white supremacy is also related to, like, the doctrine of discovery, which Mennonites have been working at dismantling the doctrine of discovery, which is the history of colonization, manifest destiny and settling on indigenous land without any relationship or with the intent to get rid of, you know, whatever indigenous people were there. And of course there's lots that could be said about doctrine of discovery, but I think 
that's very much connected to white supremacy and to Christian hegemony, which these are, there's a lot of like terminology and, and jargon there, I realize. But I think in a nutshell, if we are looking at Christian hegemony today, part of what it does or what we're seeing in the United States is the targeting of other religious groups, especially Muslims, you know, whereas like Christians are seen as the normal, good, upstanding people. And, you know, Muslims need to prove that they're peace loving, which is so ridiculous to put it mildly, given all of the violence that the United States that likes to think of itself as a Christian nation, all the violence that it has done around the world, um, you know, for centuries. So the way that we normalize Christianity and other religions is also a part of something that, that Christians, I think, really need to think about. Like, what does it mean for us to claim what we know to be true in following Jesus and recognizing Jesus as the divine And to do that in a way that allows us to be a part of the family of faith rather than needing to be like the only or like the best faith. Can we figure out how to be within that family? And I think that Vincent Harding, again, in his life really modeled that kind of relationship across these religious and spiritual differences where he was very rooted in the Christian tradition but that didn't keep him from learning from and being in relationship. So those are three things. And perhaps, I don't know if maybe one of those sticks out or with the time we have left, if, the, if there's another question to hone in on one or, or a few of those. I do have a related follow-up. One division I see in, in the Mennonite Church among our peacemaking lines, and, and these are crude categories, you know, so there's overlap, but it's almost like, are, are we third way or are we activists, for lack of a better term? And it's funny, people sort of self-segregate along those lines, and they'll, they'll see tactics that might be uh, used with one side or the other. I mean, we reflect the political culture that we're, that we're all breathing in in a lot of ways, even in our peacemaking. I don't know. I mean, for Joanna and you too, Melissa, I'm really curious because I ask people this a lot. Like, it could, how did these things work together to move forward? Or maybe is, is it not that? Do, do third-way approaches sort of have to evolve to remain relevant? Or how are we going to take the history that we've, that we've built on and make it so it actually means something in the current context? I think that's a great question and, and could be answered in a lot of different ways. What comes to mind for me first is a big part of the third way is questioning our default assumptions. So if our default assumptions are around like activism is the only way and everybody needs to be out in the streets and be an activist, we need to, th- to think about like, well, Maybe there are other ways of uh, working for wholeness in the world. Or maybe me as an activist, maybe I need to be doing some deeper like spiritual grounding work so that I can continue to show up. And it's not just kind of ego fueled, like we're going to win someday. We got to just keep going, you know? (laughs) So, and I think for folks who are oriented in a different way, like towards the inner spiritual work and transformation, like to question that and say, well, how can I be stretched towards, you know, something that feels uncomfortable? So I think maybe a third way is about like, in what ways do we need to be stretched? And it's not the same kind of stretching for everyone. And I would also say that I think for Mennonites, especially, it's really interesting to look at our history and to understand like the origins of the movement, because there's a way in which not just Mennonites do this, but I think it's so easy to spiritualize who Jesus was and what his movement was about. And the same with, in some ways, the Anabaptist tradition. But if you, if you look at 
the stories of Jesus. So at First Mennonite, we just did a Bible study on capitalism during Lent, which was really interesting. And I learned so much um, working on that in a lot of different ways. And the only person that Jesus kind of didn't welcome into his movement was this rich guy who was making money because he was exploiting people, you know, even though he was following the laws and everything. You know, and so I think that should give us pause, especially as people of privilege. It's like, what really was the movement doing? And was it just about a, like a spiritualized salvation? Or was it about people's actual bodily needs being met? And I think with the Anabaptist movement as well, it was a really tumultuous time in Europe. And the Anabaptists were a group of people who were saying collective ownership, like sharing like reading the Bible together, like non-hierarchy are important. And this was the time when like the groundwork for capitalism was being laid and having like a group of people that are saying no to privatization, it was a huge deal. So I think even knowing our history can also help us to think about like, where have we internalized kind of what I would say is like a Christian hegemonic view that kind of takes us out of our bodies and our embodied experience and is about, you know, kind of being right and having the answers. I think that Mennonites have a really interesting opportunity to kind of be a, yeah, we have some like wedges into challenging kind of mainstream Christianity when we, you know, look at Jesus, when we look at Anabaptist history and what really kind of made that stuff subversive. Like it's the same thing. I think that, could make us subversive today. It's what made Dr. King subversive. You know, he was leading a poor people's movement to change the world, and that was not welcome. <laughs> yeah, I appreciated that Vincent Harding's continual call to white Christians is to is to make space and to recognize the ways that white Christians have set the agenda for reconciliation and peace movements. And so the phrase that kept coming to mind is that continuing to be comfortable with the discomfort of being challenged by that. And um, so the one of the quotes that I'll pull out that you gave to us is, he says, the fear that is deeply ingrained now in white America is the fear of not being able to set the agenda anymore and having to work out some kind of collaboration, real collaboration that would require everybody to make adjustments. I hear that in what you're saying too, that this kind of reckoning that we do within ourselves is also asking us to give up some of our, as white Christians, our hold on the agenda. And this phrase from him sounds relevant for me and in, in my work and, and what I see happening all around me. Um, so Joanna, where are we going to buy this book at? Everyone wants to know more now. So. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, you can get it through Whip and Stock um, Publishers. And it's also on Amazon. Um, if you just search The Movement Makes Us Human online and Dr. Vincent Harding, I'm sure that it will come up. But yeah, it's with uh, Whip and Stock Publishers out of Eugene, Oregon. Joanna, is there anything else you want to want people to know about, about your book or about your work or about Vincent Harding before we let you go? Well, there's one quote that I think some Mennonites are familiar with. It was... In 1967, the same year that the Beyond Vietnam speech was delivered by King at Riverside Church, Vincent Harding delivered two speeches to the Mennonite World Conference in Amsterdam, and I'm sure was one of the few uh, speakers of color, and he had some really clear words for Mennonites at that time that I think continue to resonate. Both of these speeches are reprinted in the book. That was something that 
was really important to me to have some of this historic writing. Uh, well, now it's historic writing, but to hear how he was articulating himself in the 60s to Mennonites. The title of this speech is the shorter one is called The Beggars Are Marching, Where Are the Saints? And this is what he said to the Mennonite World Conference in 1967. Mennonite Christians, men and women who love humanity, where are we? If Jesus is our guide to life, where are we? In conferences, shaking hands and taking pictures? In seminars, formulating tidy doctrines of the Spirit? In churches, singing and preaching excellent theology to the same names for generations? In quiet communities, proclaiming law and order and free enterprise? Huddled behind the barricades of the status quo, praying the storm will soon be over so that life can continue undisturbed? March out, saints, and be counted. March out of buildings. March out of denominations. March out of the churches, if need be. March out of the conformity and terror of the roaring night. You have nothing to lose but your lives and a world to gain. The master is already on the road, and he says, I am the way. Follow me. Joanna Shank, the author of the new book, The Movement Makes Us Human. Go out and buy it from Whippenstock. Joanna, we're just so grateful for you for your work at First Mennonite Church of San Francisco, for your activism, and uh, just happy to be church with you. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, Joanna. Thanks for listening to Peace Lab. Peace Lab is a production of the Peace and Justice Support Network and the Mennonite. We'll look forward to seeing you next time.